What comes to your mind whenever you think of a sign? You know, sometimes people maybe think of, of road signs. Maybe you think about sign language. Uh, maybe, if you like to text on your cell phone, maybe you think about those little uh, symbols, the, the uh, emojis and different things like that. If you don't know what emoji is, that's, that's fine. I, most of them don't make sense to me anyways. And maybe whenever you think of signs, I know uh, one thing that, that my dad used to always say is he, he kept talking about these hieroglyphics, and he was referring to like a lot of these electronic devices that you see. They no longer say things like play and stop and stuff like that. It's like, okay, you have a, a square or you have a triangle, and they, those are supposed to be hieroglyphics. They're symbols that, that tell you what they are. In fact, that even while I was sitting there, I was thinking about it, this, this clicker got two extra buttons you know the the left and the right one I understand that one of them advances the slide the other one goes back I get that okay but then it's got two buttons and I can't always keep it straight which is which one of them has a circle and that's supposed to be for the uh, uh, the, the the little powerpoint the little dot thing not powerpoint the little dot thing the laser and then the other one it's a it's a square and that's supposed to be whenever you blank the screen or whenever you press it again it, it, it unblinks it so it's just kind of you know we live in a world in which it's got like these signs, these symbols that, that appear everywhere. Well, we've been looking at John's gospel and John recorded some signs that Jesus did. But I want you to think about their purpose and I want us to look at their purpose. The big thing that the signs that John wrote about was that God is in your midst. In fact, really, that's kind of what miracles were all about and what signs in the Bible were all about is God's doing something. He is in your midst. The signs themselves, they're not really supposed to be the focus. They point towards something else. Just like a stop sign, okay, the sign itself is not really the focus. What the focus is, you need to stop because there's danger ahead or you need to you know, make sure that there isn't danger ahead or something like that. You know, these, these signs that we have, they draw your attention to something else. Something else that typically is almost always more important. And in the case of the signs like the miracles, it's God. God is the one that he is our focus, but these signs, they point toward him. Well, in John chapter 20, toward the end, uh, John tells us why he recorded the signs. He, he gives us this. He says in verses 30 and 31, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So, I mean, we, we see even from here toward the very end of John, he tells us why he did record the miracles he recorded or why he recorded the signs. That's, that's the language that John liked to say. He called them signs. You know, we typically refer to them as miracles, but John liked to use a different word. He used signs. Um, and he said there's a lot more that Jesus did, a lot of other signs that Jesus did. But John only records just kind of a select few for us. And for the next few weeks, we're going to take a look at some of those signs that John talks about. This morning, we're going to look at the first sign that John records for us and what that tells us about Jesus. But I do want you to realize this, this, couple of, this passage right here, these couple of verses, which you'll see this repeatedly probably throughout the next few weeks. And you might even be able to memorize this and, and remember this because this is so important to John's gospel. It is, yes, Jesus did other signs. And the, the ones that were written down, the ones that were recorded, they are so that we can believe that Jesus is the Messiah, so that we can believe that he's the Son of God, and so that we can have life in his name. Those are kind of the main focus of all these things. So this morning, as we look at this sign, keep in mind, it's to point us toward Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Son of God, and in him we can have life. 
So if you keep that in mind for the next few weeks as we look at these signs, uh, I think you know, you'll, you'll be on a, a pretty good track to see what, what John is getting at and what he's talking about. So let's take a look at this first sign. I'll give, you, I'll, I'll give this to you. It's kind of an unusual sign. John's the only one that really even talks about this at all. But he makes a big deal in saying, this is the first sign that Jesus did. So let's take a look at it together. It's found in John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, Why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to his servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the water jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Okay, so we're, we're going to take a look at this miracle, this sign, this sign that points toward Jesus, that will show us that He is the Messiah, He is the Son of God, and in Him we do have life. And, and I want us to look at it kind of in, in uh, three different aspects of it, kind of three different points of it, and find out something about this sign. Because I think that a lot of times this is one that, you know, it's just like, it's 11 verses long. Once we read it, we might just be like, well, that was kind of cool, and then move on. I want us to focus a little bit more time than just that on this. And I want us to see what is Jesus really doing right here? And what's the significance of it? What's the importance of it? So let's start off with this first thing. When did Jesus do this? Well, more importantly, I kind of want to draw your attention to the kind of timing of things and and what he says. Particularly a phrase that he points out here in verse 4. Whenever he responds, you know, his mother says, okay, look, they've run out of wine. We need to do something about it. It's kind of like what what she's getting at here. But he just simply responds, my hour has not yet come. And when you look at that, you know, it's a little confusing. And you might be thinking, okay, so why why did he say that? And I've heard a few different responses and everything. Um, Obviously, he's got some connection with uh, you know, his, at least his mo- mother has some connection with the, uh, the people who are kind of preparing everything, getting everything right and, and everything. But, you know, he still responds with this statement. Look, my hour has not yet come. You know, he's, he's just kind of saying that, that his time hadn't come. But yet I do want you to understand something about this phrase that John continues to use about this hour. Because that phrase about his, this hour is used several times in John's gospel. And it's connected with his glory, which you might be thinking, okay, so his glory is connected with our. That's a weird connection. We're going to look at this in in just a little bit. I'll show you some different passages in John that that, uh, that show that. But really his glory in this hour, it's connected to Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection. So already in chapter 2, we're getting these hints that Jesus, yeah, something is going to happen. Okay, his hour has not yet come, but eventually in John's gospel, Jesus is going to recognize, yeah, my hour has come. 
and we're going to see a, a, a change in all that. But it, it is pointing toward his death, his burial, and more importantly, most importantly, his resurrection. And another thing, another kind of subtle hint. Did you notice at the beginning of this uh, passage, it says, on the third day. So when you hear something happening on the third day, can you think of any other event, maybe a big event in the Gospels that happened on the third day? By the way, it's when Jesus raised up from the dead. You know, I mean, he died, and then on the third day, he raised up from the dead. I think John does this in so many different ways. He's pointing toward what is going to come. And here in this case, he uses this phrase, this language, my hour has not yet come. So let's take a look at this phrase, hour, and let's see other times it shows up. This time in chapter 2, he says, my hour has not yet come. Well, we see it again in John 7, verse 30. And in this time, what we read is this. Uh, at this, they tried to seize him, that is Jesus, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. So this verse, it connects them seizing him with his hour. Okay, so we see that connection. There's another time. In John 8, we read this. Once again, they're, they're trying to seize Jesus here. Um, 8, verse 20. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him because his hour had not, uh, had not yet come. So once again, it's connected with seizing him, and then his hour hadn't come. Okay, but then we get into this one passage that really sort of connects all these dots together and definitely points it out. In John chapter 12, we read this, and Jesus is very plain in what's going on here with his hour. In John 12, beginning of verse 23, and Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. So here in this passage, I mean, if you, if you didn't catch on to hour by this point when you're reading John, Jesus just lays it out. And he says, look, this hour, it is connected when the Son of Man is going to be glorified, whenever the Son of Man is going to die. He's talking about his own death here. And he's talking about, he, he does still... He has hints of what he's going to have in the garden. You remember in the garden whenever Jesus prayed, he was, he was about to be arrested, but he's, he prayed, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass for me. Not my will, but your will be done. And he submits to the Father's will. But he's still praying, you know, let this cup pass for me. Well, here in this case, he's talking about in verse 27, you know, Father, save me from this hour. But then he also says, no, it's for this reason that I came. This is so important. This hour, this death, this burial, this resurrection. We see this is the last time we're going to look at the word hour in John right here. John chapter 13, verse 1, we read this language. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And then shortly after this, even though really John 13, you're, you're kind of a little bit past in the middle of the book, you're really at the end of what Jesus is, is going to endure. You know, I mean... Is the Passover festival. This is the Passover festival that he's about to, to die at. So, I mean, you're kind of at the end of what the events are going to take place. But John really slows down 
in chapters 14 through the end. And he really focuses on Jesus' last few days and, and what he did at the very end. But they're all leading up to this hour whenever Jesus is going to go and be with the Father in this connection about this death, this burial, this resurrection, and what Jesus is doing in their midst. So this language about timing, this language about my hour, it's pointing toward Jesus being glorified. It's pointing toward Jesus being raised up from the dead. It's pointing toward what he's going to do, what he came here to do. So it's a big deal whenever he says that uh, in, in this, uh, among this first sign here in John 2. But there's also more about this sign. So let's take a look at, at a, another thing here. Let's take a look at the, at the wine itself. Because this is kind of something that uh, kind of confuses people a little bit. And hopefully I'll give you some stuff that, that maybe will, will help you a little bit. I'm not going to pretend like I can necessarily answer all of your questions because it is kind of weird a little bit about why Jesus is, is producing this, this wine and stuff. However, there is a lot to it. There is a lot that's going on. And I think that you can kind of also uh, notice this. Uh, this is something I don't think too many people necessarily point out. But in the Old Testament, in the book of Isaiah, uh, among his visions, he's kind of given this vision of what God is going to do in the future. And one of the things that he records is this. Isaiah 25, verse 6, he reads, uh, it reads, On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. You know, you, you see this connection there with, with Isaiah is getting this, this vision of what is going to happen in the future and how there's going to be bounty, you know, abundance of everything. That's kind of one thing that's connected with, with wine. I don't know that we really connect it with that as much like today, but during the times in the Bible, many times wine was connected with having an abundance of fruit. You know, whenever you've just got so many grapes and stuff, you produce wine from it. And then sometimes people will throw banquets. They'll throw parties and, and everything. It's connected together. And Jesus is here. He's in this party. But this party is a little different. This wedding. It's definitely something to, to be celebrating. But at this wedding, something has happened to the wine. They've run out. There's no more wine. Well, well what do you do in that point? Well, what Jesus brings in is he changes the scenario from one that has no wine to one that has an abundance of wine. I mean, when you look at the language that's being described here, it is that whenever he tells them to fill up those jars, which by the way, you know, those are pretty big jars when you, when you step back and you look at how, I mean, this is a lot of gallons of, of water that's going to be changed into wine, but it, it's an abundant amount right there. And they fill it to the brim. I mean, there's so much about the language that is pointing toward this abundance. And if you choose to see it, we see kind of, a, in a sense, the fulfillment of that in Isaiah, that God is having this banquet. He is having this abundance of things. And there is this, you know, aged wine that, that, that's present and all. So we kind of see some of these connections in with the Old Testament and this idea of, of uh, what the Messiah, what the Christ is going to bring in. And I want you to think about this. If you were to see this miracle being performed, I want you to imagine, you know, uh, what this would be like. Because really... It kind of seems, we're going to get into this a little bit later, but it kind of seems like most people at the wedding didn't necessarily know what was going on just right in the midst. But what about those people who did know? You know, I mean, those people who were in charge of filling up that water, because let's face it, in order to get that much water, it took some time. Okay, they couldn't just turn on the tap water and it just kind of pours. And I mean, it took some time. So 
as these, as these servants are filling up this water, they've got to be wondering, what are we doing? You know, we were told by Mary to do whatever he says. Why is he having us fill up these jars with water? And, you know, at some point, they're just like, okay, so we're filling up these waters. And, you know, after you fill up the first one and even the third one and all, they're still not seeing anything. They're just filling it up with water. And then imagine what, what their face was whenever they really noticed this water is not water anymore. It, it has changed to wine. Think about that. Now, for some of you, you might have a better imagination than others. And for those of you who maybe don't have as, as good of imagination, I, I want to show you something and, and get you to think about what this would, what would, what this, uh, you know, would kind of look like. And hold on just a moment. Obviously, these containers are a lot smaller, and they're not made out of stone. If they were made out of stone, you wouldn't be able to see, uh, see them anyways. But I want you to think about the moment whenever you go from having this water, and then all of a sudden, you start pouring it out to give it to the, the, the master of the banquet there, and then you start to realize that that water is not water any longer. Something has changed. Now, in this case... I know I'm going to have several of you ask me afterwards, how'd you do that? Okay. This is not wine. This is not grape juice. It's grape Kool-Aid. Okay. It, but um, I just put some Kool-Aid at the bottom. Whenever you fill it up, it, it turns colors. I'm not saying at all that this is what Jesus did. This just gives you a visual idea of what it would have been like. I mean, just seeing something. I mean, obviously we see the difference from going from clear to this. I mean, it's, it's a huge difference. And whenever they experienced it, they could drink it afterwards. And they realized, look, this is, this is the real stuff. In fact, whenever Jesus got his hands on it, it's not just it's the real stuff. No, no, no. It's the best stuff. I mean, this is wonderful stuff that Jesus has made, that he has, he has brought in and he shared something. And also, I think that is, is so important. Did you ever notice that they point out about those jars? And they say, well, these jars were used for these ceremonial cleansing. You know, that was important for the Jews. They, they were very important about these cleansing, and you had to, to wash before you, um, uh, before you had meals and different things like that. But yet these vessels that we see that were intended for Jewish ceremonial cleansing, whenever Jesus gets his hands on them, what is clear to everybody is these now have become vessels for wine in this new age of the Messiah, this new messianic age that Jesus is ushering in. I mean, at this time, people were expecting the Messiah to come and they were wanting to see something great, something wonderful. And when Jesus gets his hands on things such as so simple as like water, amazing things can come from it. Amazing things happen from it. And we start to see that, that Jesus is truly in control of everything around him. Yeah, this points toward, this sign points toward Jesus has this power and he's willing to show it and he's willing to share these things and share this life that he has. I somewhat got ahead of myself just a little bit there because the next thing and the final thing I want us to look at is why. You know, maybe you've thought this before. Maybe you've read this and you've just wondered, why are we reading this? Why are we seeing this? You might be wondering, 
why are you preaching a sermon about this? You know, this is kind of one of those passages that we just, yeah, it's in the Bible, we read over it, but I mean, should we really take the time to look at it? I think there's a lot, even from this story, that we can learn and a lot of importance to it. For instance, I want you to think about this. Who was this sign for? You know, uh, it's not for the master of the banquet. Because when you find out here in verse 9, um, the master of the banquet, he didn't even know where the wine came from. You know what I mean? He just tasted it and he's like, oh, well, this is great. He didn't know where it came from. Is it only for the servants, though? Is this sign only for the servants? The servants knew. They understood because they're the ones that had to, to draw that water from somewhere. They had to get it there. They understood that this wine was not by their doing, and it wasn't that somebody brought wine. No, no, no. Jesus just made this. It was right back there in these jars that we've got. But is that really the only purpose? Is that the only uh, people that this sign was supposed to be for? Well, if you skip on down just a couple more verses to verse 11, you find out that the disciples believed. So now we start to see, okay, so this, this sign... It's more than just for you know, one person. It's not just for this master of the, the, the banquet. It's not just for those servants who went through it and, and experienced it like that. And it's not even just for those disciples who believed, although that's part of it, and that gives us a good hint at, with the purpose of it. But it's also for us. You realize John wrote it down for a reason. I mean, he saw fit that it was, it was so important that he's like, I've got to record this because... Future Christians have got to to realize this is the first sign that Jesus did. This is important, what he did. And by this, we see that the disciples are said to believe in him. We also see another thing about this purpose in verse uh, verse 11. It says, um, the, uh, the second to last phrase right here, that he revealed his glory through this sign. This is the first sign that he revealed his glory through. So the purpose of this sign... It was that he revealed his glory. He revealed who he is and what he's doing in the world. And he's doing things that's that's different, things that they hadn't seen before. He's showing that he has power. He's showing that things are changing. We also see this, that it specifically says that this was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. It's the first one of them. And because you read that it's the first sign, I think at this point, if you're reading through John, you should start to realize, okay, if that's the first sign, what's the next one? You know, and you should realize there is going to be another one. If, if you have a first one, you're going to have more. And here with this first sign, there are many more that are going to follow. And in the next few weeks, we're going to take a look at some of those signs. And we're going to see how they point toward the power and the might that Jesus had and that he still has. See, all of these signs that we read about in John's gospel and the rest of the gospels too, let's go ahead and and throw them all together. All the signs that we read about, they all point toward who Jesus Christ was. They also point toward who Jesus Christ still is and they point toward who Jesus Christ will always be. Jesus doesn't change, but these signs, they help point toward him and show us who he is how powerful he is, and what he's doing in the world. Jesus is most certainly the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the Son of God. And we can have life by believing in him. That's the whole purpose of these signs, so that we can experience those things, so that we can believe those things, so that we can know those things. Do you believe those things? And more importantly than just if you believe them, are you willing to do something about that belief? Are are you willing to step out and walk behind Jesus Christ and allow him to lead you 
Because that's what we as Christians are called to do. 